Every year, a group of friends gather to celebrate a Passover Seder. Each couple in our group represents a mixed marriage, one Jew and one Gentile. Our family supplies the child, excuse me, now the youth, to ask the question, why is tonight different from all other nights? We tell the Exodus story, and depending on who's hosting, add various new twists to the ancient saga. In South Minneapolis, this annual retelling of the psychodrama reflects what is happening in the cultural zeitgeist. Indeed, in many places around the world, the Seder, the Exodus story is something of a Rorschach test for the cultural consciousness. An orange on the Seder plate, not traditional, represents those voices that have been silenced over the years, such as GLBTQ folks. An olive represents a hoped-for peace between Israel and Palestine. A small dish of olive oil represents the lives lost in pursuit of fossil fuel in the Middle East. No motor oil on the Seder plate, please. Sometimes we take time to play pin the plagues on Pharaoh, <laughs> complete with a blindfold. That's pretty fun. We always have Elijah's cup filled with wine, but now we also place a cup for Miriam, Miriam's cup filled with water, a reference to Moses' older sister and a prophet in her own right. According to the story, it was Miriam who found water in the desert for the Israelites. But in fact, we don't know that the Exodus event actually happened. One of my seminary professors used to say that it may have just been a couple of guys who knocked over a guard and ran off into the desert. <laughs> no archaeological evidence has ever been found to support the biblical account as we just heard it. This oral history that has been passed down and celebrated for millennia, too often at great risk to the storytellers. It is certainly beyond the imagining of some that the central event of liberation in the Older Testament never even happened. My purpose here today is not to argue the veracity of the Exodus narrative, but rather to enter into this story, this story we know of God's intervention, this story of freedom and liberation, and reframe it yet again, as a story of displacement and exile, a story of ambiguous loss, one of many possible examples of loss that is unclear and for which the grief is unsanctioned. Psychotherapist Pauline Boss, who is internationally known and is a professor emerita at the University of Minnesota, is a pioneer in studying this particular form of grief, ambiguous loss. She says that there are two distinct types of this ambiguous loss. This is the lecture part of the sermon. Just hang with me here for a few minutes. Type one is when there is a physical absence, but a psychological presence in the family. So 
the person in body is missing, but they are still psychologically a part of the family. The grieving families of the passengers of the Malaysia flight do not have a body, they do not have a death certificate. Those markers that help make it clear and concrete that a loss has occurred. Families of soldiers missing in action or survivors of genocide may spend their entire lives in a kind of uncertainty about the fate of their loved ones. More common examples of this, perhaps less catastrophic, are the loss of absent parents due to divorce or a birth parent making a plan for the adoption of their child. Certainly the loss of physical contact with parents and siblings due to immigration. Our exploration of the Exodus story will fall into this category, physical absence but psychological presence. Type two is where there is physical presence but psychological absence. The body is here, but the mind is not. There's an emotional or cognitive absence. Such loss can occur from Alzheimer's or other dementia, traumatic brain injury, depression, addiction, other chronic mental or physical illnesses that take a loved one's mind or memory. Now, situations often fit neatly into type one or type two, but sometimes the loss is so ambiguous that even that is unclear, and this makes the grief so much harder. In my family of origin, we are living through, living with an ambiguous loss, an ever-deepening estrangement from my only sibling, my older brother and his wife. The details of that estrangement are not important here, but the pain and stress that this has caused to my parents and to me is, has become in some ways the defining characteristic of our family. Even something as simple as National Sibling Day celebrated this week on Facebook when people would put pictures of themselves and their siblings. I see some of you and I've met your siblings this week. <laughs> Even that carried a painful reminder that whatever bond we once had is now broken. Because I love them and I enjoy them, I talk to my folks almost every day. But it's also because we're all aware now that I am functionally and emotionally an only child, something we never imagined in our wildest dreams. And we've leaned into each other. We lean in to each other. I know that some of you are estranged from family members. There is no sanctioned grief for this kind of loss. In our family, we have come to hold two simultaneous ideas, two competing truth claims, the hope that someday something will shift, and the full understanding that we may never have resolution. We may never have an understanding of what caused the rift. It's complicated. It's painful. And after years of being stuck in grief, we have found a way to live with this unresolved, ambiguous loss. 
Last month, my dear friend Sandy lost her mother to Alzheimer's disease. She traveled back and forth from St. Paul to Fayetteville, Arkansas for months, years, to attend to her mom and her dad and her aunt Jean, her mother's sister. Sandy's dad died a couple of years ago, and her mom and Aunt Jean moved together into a memory care unit and shared a room as they did some 80 years before. Each time Sandy would go, her beloveds would greet her and they would laugh together. There was still much joy between all of them. But of course, each time Sandy would see the deterioration of her beloveds, the loss of mental acuity, losing them little by little. And here's what happened, happened that highlights the great tragedy of this loss. After Sandy's mom died, Aunt Jean had to be told again and again of the death of her little sister because her mind couldn't hold it. The loss was, loss was real, but the grief was very complicated, renewed afresh each time Sandy told her the news beyond our wildest imaginings of how we would have to negotiate to navigate the grief that may come to us. Now, some theologies hold that everything happens for a reason, that God or the Most High has a plan, and that he, this God is always a he, won't give us any more than we can handle. Sister Teresa is quoted as saying, I know God won't give me more than I can handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. <laughs> Comedian Tig Nataro did this great bit just a few days after she was diagnosed with cancer. And this diagnosis came at the end of a terrible four-month stretch during which she had lost a relationship and she had had really bad pneumonia and her mother died. And at the end of this, she was diagnosed with cancer. And she says, this is a quote, you can rest assured that God never gives you anything more than you can handle. Never, never. I just keep picturing God going, you know what? I think she can take a little more. And then the angels are standing back going, God, what are you doing? You're out of your mind. And God's like, no, no, no. I really think she can handle this. But why, God? Why? Why? I don't know. Just, I don't know. You have to trust me on this. <laughs> My theology holds an alternative view. That we make meaning out of our human experiences, out of our stories. Life happens to all of us. It's fair, it's unfair. Life events that are mundane and profound, perplexing, random, silly, tragic, wonderful, weird, too much and not enough. Part of the function of spiritual practice and belonging and religious community is to make meaning out of our human stories, and to help us find clarity, or maybe even just rest in our relationship with the intimate and the ultimate, if you like, the God of your understanding. Pauline Boss says that in cultures like ours, very can-do cultures, cultures that are mastery 
uh, we lean on mastery. We can figure things out. This kind of loss is especially hard for us. We're accustomed to having the answers. There's cause and effect. We can read the analysis and find out why the financial collapse happened. We can read the analysis and see what will happen to the planet. We have cause and effect. Boy, that's hard when we run up against a loss like this, an ambiguous loss. When it happens, the only option left is to learn to live with ambiguity, to make some meaning, to tell a story and turn it around and tell it again, to recognize and acknowledge it, and to learn and, to learn and think in a paradoxical way. My loved one is here and not here. My loved one may be dead or maybe not. Maybe we'll find an answer to this estrangement, maybe not. Because if we don't, our grief remains frozen. We don't want to get over it. No one thinks anymore that grief is something to get over. But we may be able to make our peace with it and move forward, acknowledge, recognize, acknowledge, make peace, and move forward. In the reading from A. Powell Davies, when sorrow comes, let us accept it simply as a part of life. Let the heart be open to pain. Let it be stretched by it. All the evidence we have says this is the better way. An open heart never grows bitter, or if it does, it cannot remain so. In the desolate hour, there is an outcry, a clenching of the hands upon emptiness, a burning pain of bereavement, but anguish, like ecstasy, is not forever. There comes a gentleness, a returning quietness, a restoring stillness. This, too, is the door to life. And in the process will come a deepening inward knowledge that in the final reckoning, all is well. Powell is relating a healthy way to live with grief in a clear loss. But perhaps if we live with competing truth claims, acknowledgement of ambiguity, and the inexorable forward movement of life, we can achieve some of this healthy grief by letting go of our need for mastery over loss, we can live with loss, holding open the space for healing. I imagine the Israelites on that spring evening, hearing the word that came from Moses and spreading throughout their community of hundreds of thousands, we're leaving tomorrow. Don't wait for your bread to rise. Can you imagine the anxiety, the chaos? We know from the legend that the Hebrews were often a contentious lot. It's hard to imagine that even in the movement to move out of slavery into liberation and freedom, 
that everybody was on the same page about how it ought to be done. <laughs> Not everybody even liked Moses. He had proven that he had a penchant for violence. He had killed an Egyptian and a Jew. Consider also that according to legend, the Hebrews had been slaves to the Pharaoh for hundreds of years, the descendants of Jacob and his sons who followed Joseph and his coat of many colors to Egypt. So when Moses put forward the call to depart, the Israelites were leaving behind their ancestors, the burial place of their parents and their children, the ones who had been killed by Pharaoh, the only life they had ever known for hundreds of years, for a very uncertain future. They couldn't know then that they would wander in the desert for decades. In scripture, 40 years equals a long time. <laughs> when we tell the story of liberation, let us remember that it came with a cost. When we see immigrants in our community today, let us remember what it cost them to leave their homeland, even for a much wanted for different future. Perhaps you are an immigrant, or first generation or second generation born here. Maybe you grew up with immigrant parents. You know too that immigrants may experience ambiguous loss even when their new life brings them joy. Some of us are come-outers from other denominations. And we find ourselves here in this beloved community. And still, we may experience a weird kind of grief for the doctrines or practices of the faith community of our upbringing. In my wildest dreams, I never imagined I could hear the things that I have heard from this pulpit. This place where we say every week, love is the spirit of this church and service is its law. Even so, I've never experienced anything here like being baptized in a lake at church camp when I was 12 years old. And for years after I joined this church, when I would go back home and go to a Christian service, I would weep when I would encounter the communion table. I didn't want to go back there, but it had a claim on me it was an ambiguous loss. The more I can name this experience for myself, recognize it as taking place in my life and seeing it in yours and the stories you tell me of divorce, of the loss of a job, of estrangement, the more we can normalize this and know that we are not alone. This is not a story we greet each other with. Hi, how are you today? Oh, fine, the estrangement with my brother really hurts. <laughs> we don't talk about these kind of losses very much. It's unsanctioned grief. But the more we can recognize it and share our stories, the more we can normalize it as a part of our human experience and grieve and live on without a frozen grief. And so to all of us, in this springtime season, when we should all be happy at the reawakening earth, but when depression can be especially triggered in some people. 
I sing and say to you and to my brother in my heart, peace be with you, come what may, until we meet again. Shalom Havarim, Shalom Havarim, Shalom, Shalom. Lahit Rayot, Lahit Rayot, Shalom, Shalom.